The lifeblood of any pharmaceutical company is the clinical trial. What do you do when your clinical trials are potentially being disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic? I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'll be joined today by Lou Bakumini. Lou leads our infectious disease clinical trial teams. In this COVID-19 special edition, we'll be talking about resilient clinical trials during pandemics. What is really interesting about infectious disease clinical trial teams, in addition to the fact that they would be relevant for COVID-19, is that this is not the first time that they've dealt with infectious disease epidemics or pandemics. Many infectious disease trials are in less than ideal circumstances. So as a manufacturer thinks about what to do with COVID-19 potentially disrupting a phase two or phase three trial, Lou and his team have already faced those kinds of threats before, particularly 10 years ago during the H1N1 influenza epidemic in the United States and worldwide. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clinical Trials Through Pandemics, next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Lou Bakimini, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you. Tell me what your job is. I know that you work in our clinical group, and I know that you work with infectious disease, but I don't know what you exactly do. Yeah, I am a vice president here in the clinical development area, and I work within the broader topic of general medicine, but specifically I lead the infectious disease group here in clinical development. I'm not a physician, but I have been doing clinical trials in infectious diseases since about 1995, I guess. The recurring question that I hear from clients that have been in clinical trials with anyone, their own, any clinical trial, is that you have to recruit patients and get sites and recruitment done quickly or any delays there is a problem. It's the limiting factor normally in a normal course of business. But we aren't in a normal world right now. As we record, we're one week in on the COVID-19 pandemic, and I don't know that recruitment is going to be necessarily the limiting factor. There are a lot of phase three trials that are ongoing, and you have to have patients come in every so often. Does that disruption weigh heavily on your mind? Is it what you're now worried about when before recruitment was, I would say, the singular thing that was the most important thing that I would hear from customers or clients or companies out there? I'll tell you, recruitment is always the most stressful topic in the clinical trial, one way or another. And we are now experiencing process of risk assessment of our ongoing trials to determine really what the impact might be. I can tell you that the impact will be pretty heavy, and it'll depend on, of course, the level of the epidemic in particular areas. It'll depend on the type of study and what type of centers are enrolling those patients. And even the restrictions that people are being put under who might not be able to return to a study site potentially or might not want to. So right now, I would say that enrollment is going to be impacted. We're working on ways to try to reduce that impact in our risk assessments. We are trying to adopt to a softer touch by having some protocols be able to use phone data collection or other forms of electronic data collection where it doesn't necessarily require the patient to come back to the office. We're working with sites on trying to find alternative measures for them to see patients on clinical trials as opposed to possibly using off hours or spreading out patient visits a little bit so that their offices are not overcrowded and they can maintain safe distances and have time to clean offices in between patient visits. We do have some concern that some trials are going to be delayed. And whether that is a combination of site availability 
understand for each of the studies specifically what restrictions they're having right now. Hospitals are probably the most impacted at the moment, but even outpatient clinics are concerned because they're trying to support the effort to contain the viral spread. And so they are reducing non-essential visits. And for the most part, they are able to continue to work on trials because they're reducing some of their patient load for routine care. So far, it's a bit of a mixed solution, but we are working closely with the sites to try to keep the trials moving as best we can and also understand their assessments of their ability to take on new trials new trials for COVID-19 related products or even other just conventional products that are still in development. We're working on those issues and I think we're just going to have to stay in touch with them and assess the situation as it develops over time. You know, in an odd way, if there is any group of clinical trials that's had to deal with outbreaks and working through outbreaks, it's infectious disease. You don't test an Ebola vaccine unless there's Ebola. You don't test a SARS treatment unless there's SARS. And you don't test COVID-19 unless there's COVID-19. It is in the lifeblood of at least some kinds of infectious disease trials to live in these uncertain or very challenging environments. That's so true. And certainly for those physicians and healthcare providers that are at the front lines dealing with those, this is a little bit different. It's most like the H1N1 outbreak, I think, because it has the broadest spread of geographic involvement, in some ways similar in that it was primarily a respiratory infection. And we participated in some trials at that point in time. Of course, as we would have to with COVID-19, need to screen patients to understand their status going into trials. You have to give them clear instructions on how not to potentially corrupt the data by exposing themselves to others that might pass on an infection in certain types of studies. On the other hand, you've got to screen them quickly. And if you're in a hospital-based study, maybe treating patients that are more severely ill, you need to have confirmation of their diagnosis rather quickly and start them on the trial under conditions that they may already be scared and are already concerned about what's going to happen. Their participation in trial may be difficult. Also, there'll be a burden on the site staff because they're going to be stretched pretty thin some of them possibly becoming infected themselves and being restricted on access to other patients and just the overwhelming number of patients they may have to deal with. The Ebola and Zika virus were a little bit different, at least from the perspective of here in the U.S. We participated in some of the early vaccine trials for both of those diseases, and we were able to do that more easily because the disease were not here in this area. So it didn't pose an immediate threat to our healthcare system, our investigators, or the subjects that we were enrolling. This will be a little bit more challenging in so much as potential patients or subjects are locked down and some of the sites are possibly on a reduced staffing or maybe so overburdened that they're going to struggle to participate. What have infectious disease trials, including you mentioned H1N1, the so-called swine flu of, I think it was 2009, and that pandemic, what has your experience there been, and what have you learned about how you harden trials or make them resilient? I'm just even thinking about my own consulting teams. I think now about, well, if someone gets sick, do we have that document in multiple places so that if they get sick, we can still access that document? Do we have multiple people that know how to do something? And that cost, that resiliency cost, because there's redundancy there. So in good times, you tend not to think about it. But in times like this, you do think about those resiliencies and you've thought about them before. If you're running a quote-unquote normal trial, 
in normal times, not in infectious disease and not where the healthcare system is under threat, there are things that you'd want to do to make it in now more resilient. What are those things? Well, we're very fortunate now, I have to say, in that the technology advancements have come a long way in the past 10 years. We're far ahead of where we were in the H1N1 epidemic. We're in a situation now where you can really do a trial almost entirely electronically and not really need to expose much of your staff to patients or patient areas or hospitals where the disease may be spreading. So with remote-based monitoring and the proper systems in place, you can do everything from manage the consenting process, the TMF, the site file, all the data exchange electronically, which we were able to do to a degree during the Ebola epidemic. So that gives us a great advantage. We do certainly think about our own staff and our own teams for the most part. They're all working from home or offices are reduced in staffing to allow for more space between our employees. We're all quite well connected. I think that there are some stresses on the system throughout the world right now with so many people working from home, but we've had no significant lapse in functionality. And I think that will be our biggest advantage going into trials for COVID-19. Back in H1N1, were the disruptions ever enough that the agency, uh, say FDA, had to, I don't want to say look the other way, but be a little bit more understanding of things like data gaps? Or you had anticipated testing somebody every month and you didn't. You had to skip two months because they couldn't access care for one reason or another. Is this so wholly unprecedented that the agency has never faced what's going to be people turning in their homework with the dog having eaten half of it? Well, I think the agency has matured a lot, too, over the past 10 years in their understanding of how to manage these situations. And I think that's most evident in their recent publication of the guidance for conducting trials of medical products during the COVID-19 pandemic. So they're already providing guidance out here in March. Now you could argue that maybe that's a little bit late, but I think certainly it took some time to understand the full extent of the impact or potential impact of this. And having issued that guidance, I think is really going to be helpful for our industry. I would say most of us have been working ahead of this. There's been a lot of industry discussion around how to manage the situation. And all of us, I'm sure, are just as we are working on a risk assessment for how in each individual trial we can manage the risks that are posed by the pandemic. And among those risks could be, as you stated, some gaps in data. So those all need to be considered as risks and logged in appropriately so that we can appreciate at the end of the trial that it was a COVID-19 related rationale or reason for why that particular thing didn't get done. Of course, the priorities are ensuring patient safety, and that includes doing our best to ensure that they can continue on trial treatments if they're ongoing in a treatment phase, also reducing any burdens to them so that they don't feel obligated or mandated to come to an office and possibly exposing themselves to the virus when they're coming in for a visit that maybe could have been done in another way, maybe just through the phone or some other method, or maybe skip, maybe without any implication to the trial. So I think that there's a variety of things that the FDA has outlined, and that will give us all a chance to have some consistency in how we're handling it. And I think at the end of the day, as they consider the trials that are being impacted, they will be in a better place to understand what the impact was, make recommendations or accommodations for these trials that are directly having a significant impact. Certainly, I think it'll be incumbent on all of us who are managing these trials to monitor critical efficacy and safety endpoints. It is 
possible that maybe some trials might have to extend enrollment in order to collect enough data to still manage to meet a statistical endpoint. It's something I think that we'll need to manage along the way. And to do that, we'll have to be very closely monitoring the impact of any missed visits, missed data, or other forms of protocol deviation they're experiencing. Last question, without talking about our particular clients, so just saying in general, if you were someone in the industry who is overseeing a large phase three trial or a phase two trial that's really the lifeblood of the company, you'd be worried. What advice do you have if you're a manufacturer out there and you're banking that your phase three trial succeeds, your phase two trial succeeds, and really everything depends on that? What advice do you have for someone in that position? What do they need to know that they maybe didn't think about four weeks ago? There is a lot of stress out there. I can certainly feel it every day. And I think that my best advice would be not to panic, take a deep breath, sit back, work with your team and go through a diligent risk assessment, what the potential impacts are, depending on the patient population, the nature of the investigational sites that you're using, the location of those sites. Pay attention, very close attention to what those sites are telling you about local conditions. Don't monitor the news so much as build your own information pathways so that you can understand the continued impact of this as it matures and develops over time. And then I think there will be a point where you're going to have to make some decisions. And some of those decisions may be to take a pause if there's just too much impact and it just doesn't seem like it's going to work, or maybe assess certain sites for a pause for a period of time. Some may request that anyway. I think if there are good options available, see if you can reassess the protocol requirements and what could be done through an electronic means or what types of visits could be done remotely through a phone call or other mechanism of communication to patients that doesn't require them to come to the office and make some assessments of the impact of that on your safety and efficacy. I do believe that a lot of these trials can continue to go through. They might be a little bit slower. There may be some deviations, but I do think a number of trials are going to be able to progress with reasonable success. If trial is really based in a hospital setting or an ICU setting, I think the same rules apply, but you may see in those environments situations where the site will really need to be prioritizing the medical care of the patients as opposed to clinical trials, and that's just part of the assessment. We certainly encourage people to work with the full team and the investigators to understand the impact at the local level and make those decisions responsibly and without panicking and with a very well-thought-through risk assessment. Well, Lou Bacamini, thanks so much for joining me on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life. Thank you.